From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. One of the last ones before the end of the year. The new year. Right? Like maybe one more, maybe one more, maybe two more. We have a few. Because, guys, we're not going to. I think we have like four more. all up in your feed, <laughs> though, like all over the holidays. We're going to give you some space. Oh, that's not true. I feel like that's important. We'll that's find, we'll find, we'll find ways to be there. <laughs> it, there might be some, uh, you know, best of, some hits. We'll play the, we'll play Maybe. The we'll see. Yes. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. We'll hash it out off air. So here's what I would like I want to, like, do just a. A cut of all the times Zach was wrong on the podcast, just <laughs> play <laughs> over and over and over, and all the times we were right. Is that the divide? Well, you're just in the room with me, so yeah, we're on, we're on we're on team we're on team right. New York versus Seattle. <laughs> I feel like we would get kicked off of Spotify for posting a 30 second episode. I don't really know what we would do. Ooh, <laughs> interesting. That that's how you feel. Anyways, well, Adam, I got all the clips, baby. I got all the clips. Don't you worry. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> what have you been drinking, Zach? Uh, good question. Um, you know, it's been, I feel like, you know, last week we talked about this and you both were like, oh, you know, kind of laying low, getting ready for the holidays. And, and I was not, <laughs> have not been. Um, <laughs> but it hasn't been, it, it's been kind of a, a bit of a quiet week, uh, all told. Nothing like super exciting, uh, kind of between uh, Caitlin's birthday and then got some, the holidays and my birthday coming up. So that said, uh, a couple of bottles of wine that were really enjoyable over the last week. Had a bottle of uh, 2016 Remy uh, Chardonnay from uh, Fort Ross Seaview AVA out in the Sonoma Coast. Just a beautiful bottle of wine. Um, I, David Remy reminds me of my dad, so maybe that's kind of why I've always liked him. Um, <laughs> better winemaker than my dad, though. Sorry, Dad. Is your dad a winemaker? No, no. I'm just assuming, I guess, to be fair. <laughs> um, but nice, nice bottle of wine really went nicely with uh, the, uh, well, I don't remember what we had that night. Maybe some chicken or something like that. Sounds like a Chardonnay kind of meal. And then the other thing I had is uh, I did something that I had wanted to do for a while and have never made before, which is I made uh, braised oxtail. It was uh, in the grocery store nice. and on sale. And I was like, well, you know, I've always kind of wanted to do this. I've done lots of other braised meats. And, you know, from what I had read, you know, it's not that dissimilar from doing short ribs, which I feel very comfortable with. And so I went and got them and braised some short ribs and served those with a uh, bottle of Syrah from a friend of mine, Andrew Lotta, Lotta Wines here in, in Washington uh, from the Rocks District down in Milton Free Water, kind of uh, in the southeastern corner of the state down in Walla Walla. Uh, really nice. The uh, oxtail is... I mean, it's interesting to cook uh, and eat because it is like even more than short ribs. It is so, so rich, but it was really nice on its own. And then actually where it really, uh, in my opinion, shined the best was the next day when I made borscht and put some little bit of uh, oxtail in there. And that was really tasty. I like, I really like borscht. I make like one batch a Mm -hmm. year because like Caitlin is fine with it, and the it's kids so labor intensive it. with the beets. Yeah, well, you know, there's like the the labor intensiveness, and just the reality that like I'm really, I think the only person in the family who really loves it, and so you know, make it for myself like <laughs> once a year. Uh, you know, the, the Caitlin shares, and the kids, uh, I think Saul had like two bites, and he was like, I don't like it, and I was like, fine, that's cool, you can just eat your whatever else <laughs> I gave you that night. Um, you know, such is life of, of the parent. But yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of been it. Uh, I'm sure over the next couple of weeks, whenever we do have new episodes, there'll be some exciting holiday bottles for all of us to talk about. But uh, how about you, Joanna? What you've been having lately? Yeah, I mean, I'll keep this brief. I have had nothing in the oh. past week. <laughs> there was a lot, be non-alcoholic. 
I mean, I'll allow it. You know what? I'm not. Okay. Well, something I've been on to lately <laughs> is Fever Trees Sparkling Grapefruit Soda. It's really? very delicious. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. Mm. I highly recommend that. But yeah, we've had a lot of like wonderful champagne in the office. There will be a list soon yeah. on Vine Pear, but um, really nothing to speak of. <laughs> well, wait, Joanna, <laughs> you need to give me a little bit of, give me detail on this Fever Tree Grapefruit Soda. Are we talking like... Is it closer in in sort of spirit to like spindrift, like kind of just like a little bit grapefruity, or is it like more like a, a classic like squirt? What are we talking about here? No, no, it's it's closer to spindrift, but um, sweeter. Okay, so like it splits the difference, I suppose. It's pretty dry. It's not quite a soda, but it's a uh, it's pretty good. Would you use it for a Paloma? Yes. Okay. It would be delicious. Nice. Yeah, it would be delicious with uh, some tequila and some lime. Very good. I dig that. Fever tree stuff is good. Yeah, I like fever tree. I like fever tree a lot. Okay, Adam, what have you been drinking? So, well, last night I went to Lure Fish Bar, which you guys love that place. It's great. Very solid, like classic it's New York been restaurant. Forever, forever. Sleeper hit is the burger, and you get white burgundy there. Yeah, <laughs> I got a Chablis, <laughs> but I got a bottle from Patrick Patrick Puse or Puse okay. Puse. Um, and his his wine's actually on our uh, top fifty this year, but I got his Chablis, um, and it was it's always just an awesome bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had that, and then earlier this week, um, we had the entire Patron team in the office, and we debuted yes. a bunch of members of the trade uh, were here, and we debuted El Alto, which mm-hmm. is their new super premium uh, tequila in the line, uh, very tall bottle. Mm-hmm. Looks like another very tall bottle, but this one's <laughs> teal. Teal, um, but it's a, a really, uh, really delicious tequila. It is. Um, yeah, it was really fun to to have them here and some of their bartenders behind the bar and uh, just launch the tequila with them. So that was a lot of fun. They were slinging my favorite cocktail. Which one? The añejo old fashioned. Uh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. The añejo old fashioned is. Cool. Quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they we, they made some delicious drinks, and then we released the bottle, and surprise, surprise, they brought six of those bottles, <laughs> and they're gone. <laughs> oh, oh, they walked off? No, everyone finished them. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I left here early. Me too. And uh, then the next day when I came back to the office, I was asking you know, Jenny how it went, and she's like, well, <laughs> the bartenders really finished the LLs, because all the trade members were bartenders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they finished it very quickly. Yeah. I was like, well, yeah, I mean... It's a delicious tequila, and you're, it's their night off. Let them let them have one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was that. Um, so Zach, this topic is uh, is yours, I think, this week, right? I feel like it's really more Joanna's. Oh, so then Joanna, you set it up. Well, I don't know. I feel like you can both do it better justice than I can. <laughs> but what I wanted oh, to talk about—that's not true. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just wanted to talk about this thing that we've encountered quite a bit. I think in just our work as a public publication, but then also after the Wine to Wine conference in Verona, this idea that like um, Americans, a lot of people just don't understand sparkling wine. And I think it's either champagne or as Zach brought up, Prosecco at this point. Um, But I think there's just like a lack of understanding of the nuances of sparkling wine or mm-hmm. the, the range of it. And um, I thought that was maybe an interesting conversation for us to have. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the reasons for that uh, I think worldwide is 
that if you want to look at it, so Prosecco really hasn't been well known amongst the population until maybe the last like decade, decade and a half where people actually like knew to ask for it by name. Right. It was served to a lot of people. You might go to an Italian restaurant where like it was a welcome glass or whatever. But most people would be like, oh, thanks for the champagne. Exactly. You know, like that was just what it was. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, and I actually just did an interview this morning, like for a bunch of local news stations <laughs> yes. about champagne. So I'm very well versed in the questions they were asking. Um, but I think, you know, what it comes down to is, so one of the things that the French are very good at across the board is marketing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at the top advertising agencies in the world, a lot of them are owned by French companies. They're really good at marketing. Uh, they're really good at, fa- you know, the top fashion labels, building that luxury lifestyle. That's all, that's like a skill that sort of, the French have always understood like sort of how to make you want luxury products mm-hmm. um, and how to sell those luxury products, right? Because I would argue the Italians know how to make luxury products and they make beautiful products. They n- are not necessarily the best at selling those products in the same way that the French are. The French are really good at it. And you one mean like the, beyond like fashion and yes, cars well, maybe? Even so, like building those brands, I think – is harder for yeah. the Italians to do. I think that's why a lot of them probably hire French marketing firms. Hmm. Um, or, you know, now U.S. marketing firms owned by French, overall French marketing firms, um, like Publicis, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the French really capitalized on from very early on is sort of the idea that not only is Champagne the best, but it's the birthplace of sparkling wine, right? It's the place where you mean the story of it, everything, too. Yeah. all, all others are copycats, mm-hmm. right? Everything else is an imitation or a shortcut. Yeah. Right. Sure. In, in the case of Prosecco. Mm-hmm. And so that idea has become so ingrained in the majority of consumers on top of the fact that it has also been cemented as a massive luxury product, right? It's like, it's the thing Napoleon gave to his troops in victory and in defeat. It is the bottles at the, you know, in the great Gatsby, it is all of these. Yeah, it's the shit the Russian czars drank, like all, all over. Exactly. Cultural. Yeah. Cult- historical cultural. Yes. And the, and the French capitalized on that messaging mm-hmm. and they, they drove it home over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so what that creates is every other person must first Every other, you know, region, et cetera, must first explain to you why they are at least equal to and then potentially better than champagne mm-hmm. because the champagne will always be in the conversation. Yeah. It, it cannot not be because of how great of a job they've done at marketing. And so I, I think that this is a problem that exists worldwide. You know, it's not just like an American problem being young in the wine industry or – you know, I mean, you see it in, as Zach was mentioning before we started recording, like you see it in countries that have pretty robust sparkling wines of their own. And basically any, almost everyone outside of that one region that, that makes sparkling wine probably still drinks champagne yeah, right, or some version of it. Like there's a stat I've heard told before, like that Italy is like one of the, Italy is like one of the top champagne consuming countries in the world. Yeah, Germany too. Same same thing. Germany makes a ton of sparkling wine even though we don't see it as much here, but like it's still a huge market for champagne and that I, I want to add a piece to what you're saying Adam because I think that yeah. 
there's an element of the marketing that's a part of it for sure. And the fact that champagne has had cachet and reputation for centuries goes, I think, you know, goes to this sort of longstanding French cultural marketing savvy, um, not even just a modern mm-hmm. phenomenon. It's a, it's a, you know, de- a centuries long thing in a lot of ways. And it, it benefits doubly from the general perception that's held throughout the world that the champagne, it's not just that champagne is the original sparkling wine in the homeland of sparkling wine, but that France is the homeland of wine period, right? Yes, it's a that's reinforcing true. That's factor there. So, Whatever the, you know, whatever the the truth of the history of sparkling wine is, which is like, you know, it's something that in various forms has cropped up wherever wine is made in a lot of different ways, not not necessarily in the, you know, method that we think of for their champagne and other traditional method sparkling wines with a secondary fermentation and bottle, etc. Um, that is a more, I mean, relatively modern invention. But, you know, effervescent wine has been around for millennia in one form or another. Yeah. And, and so... You know, it's it's important that we recognize that anyone who's attempting to push back against that hegemony of of champagne in France not, is not only pushing against modern marketing challenges, but like I said, this centuries long uh, pinnacle status for champagne and for France in the wine world. What I think is really interesting, though, is to take a look at how Prosecco has managed to carve out its own category, because I will say a thing that had changed in the landscape of me for me as a server and sommelier and wine director by the time, you know, I, I sort of stopped that part of my career a couple of years ago was early on, if someone, if you handed someone a glass of sparkling wine, Darren, if they said mm-hmm. anything about it, they almost always said, oh, you know, thanks for the champagne or, oh, we want a champagne toast. And then you, they'd, you'd sort of be like, well, do you want actual champagne? They're like, oh, I don't care. Just, you know, sparkling wine, whatever, right? Like that connotation had always, you know, it's champagne and sparkling wine had for many drinkers been synonymous. And suddenly right. over the last couple of years, I started to get like, oh, you know, you know, I'll have a glass of Prosecco and it'd be like, well, you know, we actually don't have, they, they, they want, they meant they want sparkling wine. Maybe they wanted something that was a little more flavor profile-wise similar to Prosecco, but but a lot of people, Prosecco had become the thing that they associated with sparkling wine, maybe even more than champagne, certainly in a sort of everyday sense, because in the end, champagne's positioning as a luxury product put it out of mind for a lot of people, if not out of price point for a lot of people on a day-to-day basis. And as people came to really enjoy drinking sparkling wine, as sparkling wine consumption for some people moved purely out of the realm of celebration or aperitif, but became a, you know, we're going to have sparkling wine with brunch. We're going to drink sparkling wine, you know, just hanging out. You know, Prosecco became the wine style that both fit that space and that price point. And really, I think, started to eat into that. I don't know what you would call it exactly, other than just the sort of name on the tip of the tongue for sparkling wine in a lot of consumers. Yeah, I, I was going to, I was actually, you know, I was thinking about this and in, in thinking about this conversation. Um, just to your point, I think that happened probably not as a result of flavor profile. I think it was purely a price point thing. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Do we think that perception that before, I suppose, bef- before Prosecco became a part of the the consciousness, like, that everything is every all sparkling wine is champagne ever worked against champagne in any way or did it not matter at all? I mean, I think that it did in some regards, 
you know, like this like you now, don't want some shitty sparkling wine, like people thinking that's champagne. Right. This goes, I mean, this goes way back now to, you know, when people in California were making California champagne and then they right. were sued and they had to take it off the label, except for some reason, Corbell is still grandfathered in mm-hmm. that they can call it California champagne. But, um, I think that, yeah, I think champagne is aware of that. I think that, you know, they're pretty litigious to try to stop it. But I also think that, you know, as long as you're saying champagne, that's a pretty good thing for them. And, you know, for the most part, in most settings, you're going, they're going to say to you, I'm sorry that we don't, do you, are you sure you want champagne? That's a hundred dollars. You know, like how much you're willing to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually the more, you know, interesting and commendable thing is that in that massive uh, sort of noise of champagne and against that noise of champagne and how powerful the brand is, et cetera, that people actually learned Prosecco yeah. is pretty phenomenal. And like that Prosecco broke through. Yeah. And that's really, you know, if you look, it's, it's pretty much the responsibility of two companies, right? It's LaMarca mm-hmm. and Mianetto. They spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on educating consumers about Prosecco. It's LaMarca Prosecco. Mianetto Prosecco. And was it just, it was the more affordable option? And, and that then was they the... were in all the displays in the liquor stores and the wine shops. And, you know, they were the pours at all the different, you know, more fast, casual restaurants around the country and things like that. And they were, so they were on the menu and people learned right. that this was Prosecco. And, you know, they were both in very attractive. I mean, if you also look at both of those brands, both of those brands are also using colors that nod to luxury products. So yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, before, Lamarca right? looks like Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. It just does. Like a, that, that Tiffany blue is very powerful. There's lots of marketing studies that that talk about the kinds of colors that we view as being ultimately luxury. Purple's one of them. That light blue is another. The gold that Mianetto uses is also very reminiscent of another gold on another champagne that is very popular. Mm-hmm. Probably the, it is the most popular champagne in America. That would be Vove, right? So both of them have that also going for them. They look high end, but then their price points are under 20 bucks. Yeah. And so they taught Americans what the term was and people became very comfortable ordering it. Cause then they're like, I like this. Like this tastes good. And so they're like, yeah, now there, there's no, they, they made you not be ashamed to ask for Prosecco. They, they actually taught you that like you're a smart consumer if you're asking for Prosecco. And so now I think a lot of consumers are comfortable doing that in set in certain settings. Cause it wasn't the Italian restaurants that did it. No, for sure. Yeah. It was, it was everywhere else. I want to add two other quick points to this. One of them is uh, maybe simplistic, but I think very important, which is that it's really easy to say Prosecco. Yes. It is astonishing to me how impactful it is when it, when you're talking about whether it's Italian, French, other languages that are not, you know, sort of English, how important it is for wines to succeed or probably anything, but wine is just what I'm thinking about for it to be easily pronounced because people won't order things that they're, they're worried that they're going to mispronounce. They're, they're worried that they're going to get looked down on. And like champagne is such a ubiquitous word and also kind of 
easy on the American tongue, but in a way that mm-hmm. yeah. like Francia Corta or Alta Longa or even Cremont are not, right? Like here are other sparkling no. wines and, you know, Cava is, and Cava's had some success too, but th- that's a whole nother story. And, and obviously, you know, there are Cava brands that are incredibly successful, but as a category, it hasn't kind of reached the same level of, uh, you know, kind of penetration and ubiquity that Prosecco has, but I really do think it's it's the pronunciation, and then I think it is also that even if the average Prosecco drinker or the average drinker wine drinker in America couldn't tell you how Prosecco generally tastes different from Champagne, again, sort of really broad stroke generalizations, they are different enough that I think whether it's the texture of the bubbles from the different production methods or the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, Prosecco is not lees aged generally. And so you're not getting any of those kinds of flavor notes. They taste enough. Uh, they're dissimilar enough from each other in flavor that even a casual wine drinker might with a little bit of exposure, be able to distinguish between the two. And I also think that matters for people because some people for whatever reason might've chosen to not like champagne or, or just not liked it for whatever set of reasons. And Prosecco by being different enough, as opposed to some of the other sparkling wines that we've mentioned that are very clearly trying to be analogous to champagne, just from a different place Mm -hmm. have, you know, have not succeeded because, or to the same extent, because they're trying to, make the same kind of wine just, you know, not even always cheaper, just in a different place. Whereas Prosecco is very clearly its own thing that for someone who is not as enamored with champagne, but wants, maybe likes, you know, effervescent things, they can gravitate towards that and say like, ah, I like Prosecco. I don't like champagne. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think picking up a little bit too on what you're saying, I think it's, it's not just the fact that Prosecco is easy to say. Um, it's that also the brands that were the most well-known were easy to say. Sure. Right. So like if you think about Kava, right, the most well, the most, exp- the most high, like the most high, heavily produced Kava is Frisionette. Yeah. Do, do you know how to say that? If you saw it on the I FR. Didn't, I didn't realize that was. It's got an <laughs> X in it. That's always going to fuck you it's up. Got it's got an X, X and like, we kind of don't know, how, like <laughs> Frige X in there. Like we don't know. Right. Yeah. So that, that is the, the largest Kava producer. They actually own Mianetto now. Um, Mineto is very easy to say. La Marca is very easy to say. Like that helps. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a Cava brand, I mean, the, another one is like Segura viewed, like people don't know how to, like, yeah. they're just, you get very, you know, intimidated by that. And so that just is the nature of it. And then the other thing that, you know, marketers say all the time is that consumers like names of products often that like have a hard sound in them. It's like La Marca. Mianetto. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a fun thing to say at the end. And so like there's been lots of studies. One of them is around the brand Spanx. Mm. Like people like something with like a hard sound or a t- <laughs> sound. I don't know why. Um but so that's that's the same with like Lamarca, Mianetto, mm-hmm. Frisionette. Yeah. yeah. You don't even know. Like or is it Frisionet? Right. Like you don't know. So I think all of that matters because at the end of the day, with any of these categories, a few brands do become the flag bearers of the category. And when they are the ones who are leading the category forward, they need to be brands that people can also feel comfortable talking about, you know, enjoying and then be delicious. Right. And I just think that these other categories haven't had that. And and to be available too. Exactly. Right. They're in every liquor store and wine store, pretty much. I mean, every single holiday season we get the same pitch 
right? Like we had the same information for a freelancer. I want to I want to write an article about how Cremant is the the wine that you should actually be drinking instead of champagne. Okay, cool. But then when someone goes into their local store in Omaha, Nebraska, can they find one? Is it the one that you recommended in your article? Like it's the same story over and over. The, the alternative to champagne. At the end of the day, you know, like here's the deal. We just have to accept the fact that for the majority of American consumers around the holiday season, they're going to drink champagne or Prosecco. They just yeah. are. Mm-hmm. And until there's another big brand from a big region that can sort of be the, the flag bearer of that region with a name that's easy to pronounce for consumers, that will continue to be the case. Part of me feels like this also dovetailed with the rise of bottomless brunch, too. Like yeah. Prosecco's yeah. rise. Because you have these endless mimosas or bottomless mimosas, and obviously it's not champagne in there, right? Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, that's very appealing. Well, and especially you think about it, right, how, how often that's presented where the bottle of Prosecco is put right on your table, right? You, your pitcher of orange juice, your bottle of Prosecco. So you're, it's very in your face, right? You're, it's not just being mixed up behind a bar. You're, you're seeing the label. You're seeing the bottle. You're enjoying it. And then you might, you know, when you're in the grocery store a couple of days later, you might be like, oh, yeah, that bottle of Marca, I enjoyed three of those at bottomless mimosa brunch with my friend. Now I'm yeah. going to buy a bottle to have at home or whatever. So, Adam, you mentioned a minute ago that one of the things that, you know, what it might take for another kind of sparkling wine to break through is to be associate to to be, you know, heavily marketed, whatever, but also come from a really, you know, kind of recognizable wine region. And I'm wondering if here in the United States, one of the challenges is that we don't have a huge, well-known sparkling wine region in the first place, and our most famous wine regions in general do not produce much sparkling wine. And so you don't mm-hmm. have, you know... There are sparkling wine houses in Napa Valley, you know, mostly in Carneros, and but even then, there's only a couple of them, um, and they're generally quite expensive. Unsurprisingly, that there isn't like a uh, th- that our again our most famous, most luxurious wine regions are just not connected to sparkling wine in any meaningful way. The only way to actually like make American sparkling wine into something is to create like a catch-all, like a category that says like. No matter where you are in the country, if you make a wine in this style with this X whatever, you will be called – and I think Keith has had a good idea about this. An, you will be called American Sparkler. Mm-hmm. And like that's the name of it. It's American Sparkler. And there's then a lot of like cool marketing tie-ins around like the 4th of July and summer and whatever. And like try to own that occasion as when you drink American Sparklers. And you know maybe it breaks through. But otherwise, it's – you know, it is an alternative. It's just, it's sort of an afterthought. And the problem too is like at most of the wineries that you go to that make sparkling wine, besides, as you said, Zach, the, the few in certain, in every region has a few that like specialize in it. It's always like the winemakers after those. Like, well, I like sparkling wine, so I decided to make one. You know, like right. we thought it'd be fun to have one for the wine club mm-hmm. or we thought it'd be fun to just do this. And they're not, they're, they're very few that make that their focus. And I think, you know, but for those that do, I think being under some sort of category that's maybe nationwide is the way to do this because it's I don't think we are at this point going to have a region in this country that decides that sparkling wine is the thing it wants to be known for. Yeah. And that all it wants to do is sparkling wine. Maybe maybe that will change, but it doesn't feel like that is going to happen because this is America and we do whatever we want. I have to say that I I also think that probably most people don't, they just think champagne is sparkling wine from France and Prosecco is sparkling wine from Italy. But I don't know that they associate it with a very specific region. No, they don't. 
and don't necessarily know that it can't be named those things outside of those regions. I know. Maybe that's a bleak outlook. Well, it's probably an accurate one. So fitting for the end of, you know, end of year is always a good time for bleakness, I suppose. True. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, with that, I'll talk to you guys on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Have a good week. I can't wait. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.